The Art Newspaper Weekly Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued. No, do not adjust your set. That menacing noise is the sound of a drone in the House of Commons in London. It's part of a new video work created by Cornelia Parker, who was the official election artist as the UK went to the polls last year. Parker's works, made in response to her commission, have just gone on view in Westminster Hall in the Houses of Parliament, and you'll hear my interview with her in a minute. Also this week, we'll be looking at the ivory trade, in the light of new regulations soon to be imposed by the UK government. If I was a director of a museum and I was suddenly offered a great deal of ivory at this point, I'd be thinking very carefully about whether I really wanted to accept it and the ensuing cost that that would result with. But first, to Westminster. Cornelia Parker's exhibition is in three parts. 14 photographs from her Instagram feed on the campaign trail. Election Abstract, a video of more than a thousand posts from that Instagram feed that fly by in three minutes. And Left, Right and Centre, a film partly shot with that drone you heard a moment ago in the House of Commons. I went to Westminster Hall to talk to Cornelia. Uh, Cornelia, I wonder if we could start by going back to the when you were first approached to take on this role as election artist. What went through your head when you were presented with this choice? Well, I've, I didn't. Tr- I tried not to think too closely and hard about it because I think I would have turned it down if I had. So I just said yes. So when you said yes, did your iPhone and Instagram immediately suggest itself as, as the medium to, 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 to record what you wanted to record? Well, I wasn't doing any social media at all, and I studiously avoided it, but um, you know, they insisted I do some social media, the um, Parliament, so I selected Instagram, because I, te- I took photographs all the time anyway, and I just... The, the, the time then they asked me, I was just about to open an exhibition at, at Fifth Street Gallery of, of uh, a work a video work um, about the American election. It was set at Halloween in New York. Um, so really, I was so absorbed in American politics and then I, it just seemed natural to absorb myself in my politics at home. You'd use your iPhone in that work about the American election, hadn't you? So yes. the iPhone had become a medium for you relatively recently. Was that, is that fair? Yeah, well, it had for video. I think I'd always taken photographs. It's, it's like my sketchbook, so I use it all the time but not really for, you know, exhibiting purposes. Um, and then I bought, a, um, a, you know, the, the current up-to-date iPhone and I got a lot of memory and suddenly I could film, you know, things in slow motion, I could film hours at a time. It was fantastic. So that, that kind of liberated me. What's, what's really clear to me, looking at the Instagram feed, is you quite quickly settled on some of the themes that would dominate your work. So, for instance, colour became a very important aspect um, plays on words like left and right and things. Can you tell me about how that language developed? Um, I'd curated a show at the Whitechapel in the collections room of the Government Art Collection a few years ago and I, I uh, exhibited about 80 works as a colour spectrum, so just of the colour of the work. And so it was like a political spectrum. And then I did a show in the summer show at the Royal Academy, I did a black and white room. So colour had been there for quite a long time. Uh, I'd got fluff from the House of Commons and House of Laws way back when and, you know, that there were red and there were green, so I projected those on the wall. So colour and, and politics had been there. So I was very quickly trying to set up a, you know, if this, if this is a red <laughs> a dog pointing left <laughs> or this is a, a, a blue dog, you know, pointing right. You know, I was, I was trying to 
set down some ground rules for myself and, and, and so it became a code and then if people were following it they could perhaps get into it. If they didn't, it didn't really matter. And you had to be neutral in all this, didn't you? So how scrupulous were you in that? Did you feel like you had to attend certain events for, by all, yeah, featuring all the parties, yes, etc.? Yes, yeah. I mean, I... I I quite liked having that straight jacket. I mean, I didn't know about it before I said yes, <laughs> but it's quite hard to be unbiased. But I just thought I'm going to just record what I see. So I felt of myself as a, a kind of documentary maker almost, and then it developed into something much more idiosyncratic. What I liked about the Instagram feed is that there were these little puns and jokes, but occasionally there would be a really hard-hitting image, like an image of a homeless person. How deliberate was that strategy? Well, I think what I find curious about social media is this thing about liking something. So I, a lot of the things I was seeing were not very likeable, but I thought, well, I'm going to post them anyway. And people saying, oh, it's very difficult to like, but they would, you know, they'd have a disclaimer to saying they liked it, you know, putting a heart but <laughs> beside a homeless person is quite hard. But I just felt like I just needed... Between my house and the tube, there was five homeless people. So... It was, and sometimes these people would change all the time. It weren't the same people. So um, I felt that they needed to go in. That's really interesting about this idea that Instagram's almost at the fluffy end of the social media spectrum. There's a lot of anger on Twitter yes. and Facebook. And it, um, Instagram's a lot of people sharing images and liking images yeah. and things like that. In a way, as an artist, you can play with that. Yeah, I was. I, I mean, hence all the cat videos. <laughs> yes, <laughs> my cat started to crop up a lot, but I just thought I, I, I just like that. It's a bit of a light relief, really. It's a, it pops a bubble of, you know, you posted so many homeless people, and then you get, you know, the cat playing with something, uh, and then you give it a little title, and it becomes suddenly political. When you came to deciding how you were going to present the works uh, here in Westminster Hall, um, did you know that 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 you'd, you wanted a kind of compilation or how did you formulate well, those ideas? Well, in the end, I, I, I think I'd experienced such a myriad of emotions. I felt there's this very fast-paced me charging around the country following things and recording things on my Instagram. And then there was this other thing that I wanted to do which was much more contemplative, which I, was the film I shot in the House of Commons with the newspapers. And so I made a fast film and a slow film. So the fast film is full of people and it's all the Instagram put together as a, a kind of drive-by torrent of information which summed up one part of it and then the other one was about the media in the house represented by newspapers no people empty um, a bit like the tube when you leave it on a Friday night the drone in in the film in the house of commons is a really sinister presence isn't it can you tell me about that yeah I think I knew I wanted to have a very unfamiliar view of the house one of the things for me to, about doing the project was to get access to something I never normally get access to um, you know to be in, in you know in, in, the, in the, the chamber um, and, and allowed to use a drone it took a long time and, and months of persuasion to allow that to happen but I, I think it was worth it because the drone really I wanted some malevolent force I wanted something that would blow the papers around and I didn't want to use a wind machine I it just wanted something that had its own um, place in the world but the drone has and it's very political i mean it's used in warfare it's used in surveillance it's used in all kinds of ways um and so i like that bringing this slightly malevolent presence into the house and then 
tell me about the newspapers because I was really struck watching it how many of those those headlines I remembered from my own very sort of passionate investment in this whole uh, election process some some of those really spiteful headlines yeah, yeah I think I wanted to capture all that because um, you know and I like the the news headline and its cliche value in the world you know you see it always on the news and on the uh, in films and it's it's just part of our vocabulary especially British headlines I think they're much bigger and more in your face than ones abroad so it was sort of a British thing I was struck watching the film by the fact that that language of headlines was almost like the to and fro and the boisterousness of a very full House of Commons, even though it was an empty House of Commons. Prime Minister's question time, for example, is very combative. There's a lot of toing and froing and uh, and a lot of anger, you know, and uh, lots of expletives and all the rest of it. And I think I wanted to capture that. I wanted this, you know, people crossing the house, you know. You know, now at the moment we've got you know Tory party people siding with Labour and vice versa you know there's there's a lot of touring and throwing so the left right and centre title of the film sort of captures this you know the, the right wing newspapers on one side of the table the left wing on the other side of the table and the drone mixes them all up into a horrible unholy mess <laughs> before it goes out of the house and do, and do those do those papers cover the full length of that election period and afterwards too so i i couldn't get permission to film until october so it's quite a long time after the election um, because of all the permissions and so I kept the newspapers going until that moment so it's a, it's a record of about five months Now when I interviewed you earlier in the year we met just as actually I would probably estimate it was Jeremy Corbyn's lowest ebb we were outside Chatham House waiting for him uh, to come out after he'd made a speech the day before his driver had run over the leg of a BBC cameraman <laughs> and I think there was a sort of sense then that, that things weren't going well for Labour but then there's, there was this big shock in the exit poll but there was also a, a momentum shift one sense did because you were following the campaign was that apparent to you or were you just as shocked I mean there's a there's a very interesting image on the film and actually as a as a photograph in this exhibition which features you know the the, the, the that shock yeah the iPhone the shock of the the exit yes. poll result for instance I think I was absorbing it subconsciously more than consciously and I remember driving up I was in Sunderland for the first what I thought was going to be the first count and I got a feeling it, I got a feeling that Labour were going to do a lot better than people thought just somehow but having been at the manifesto launches of Labour which was you know as election artists I was been given access in the front row or second row um, very wide open all kinds of people from all kinds of walks of life are there and they were on the stage talking about their experiences and then I went to the Tory one in Halifax a week later and it was very much more corralled you know we I was kettled <laughs> with a load of journalists at the back of the room as far away from Theresa May as you could get and it, and it just felt like a very different um you know, different atmosphere. Would it be fair to say that your work's become more political over the last decade or so? I think of Chomsky and Abstract, where you uh, spoke to Noam Chomsky about climate change, mm. for instance. I think, I think since I had a daughter, and she's 16 now, I think I started to become much more politically aware, especially about climate change, because I thought she needs the future. <laughs> and, and somehow it seems like climate change is way down the list of priorities, and it should be at the very top, because if we haven't got a world to to survive in, you know, all the rest of it is going to be meaningless. Um, so yes, I think I have become more political. I mean, I think I find it easier to be political through photography and film than I do through sculpture. I was thinking of making a sculpture for this, but then I thought, how can I make a sculpture that's going to sum up all the complexity of this election? 
That's really interesting that certain media lend themselves to political thought more than others. Yeah, and I think I think the daily reportage that I've been doing on Instagram, I've been really enjoying it. It's um, it's a real release almost of all this stuff you're trying to digest, um, and I think it's accentuated my looking. So it's like almost like going to the gym for your mind or something that it, you know you start to notice things in a particular way so I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very I'm enjoying that a lot and I think it's sharpening up my practice In the current climate it seems that a lot of artists are, are wrestling even if they're not artists that make work about current mm-hmm. affairs there's a, there's a lot of artists sort of wrestling with responding to our times is that your impression yeah you, I mean I, I think it's very hard I don't want to make propaganda you know I want to I, I just open my mouth I want to say something but um, you know I'm very worried about the cutbacks here in edu- art education yeah. when you know cultural industries are our biggest export in this country our biggest manufacturing base and if it's dropped by eight percent in the last couple of years then that is very worrying that uh, where, where all the new artists and actors and musicians come to come from if all that's been cut back in schools so yeah i mean i just i but i'd rather just say it than make a piece of work that embodies that yeah and also brexit's in all of our minds it was sort of uh, it was there during the election campaign, probably less of a big thing than we might have expected it to be. And one of the things that, that struck me in during your whole process of being election artist was you couldn't be party political, but of course Brexit isn't a party political issue, and so you were able to express views about Brexit. Well, I, I found it very confusing that that, it, that the, 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 the Tory party were using that as part of their campaign when really it should have been a cross-party group that deals with Brexit so that it allows the government to get on with all the other things they need to get on with uh, because they're so polarised I think if you get all the people together because uh, when they campaigned for, for leave and remain that, that was cross-party it wasn't one party saying we want to go and the other one to stay so it's too complicated and I think that's messing everything up Cornelia thank you so much Cornelia Parker's works can be seen in Westminster Hall until the 11th of April, and admission is free. Now, ahead of new regulations about to be imposed by the UK government, we felt it was a good moment to explore the current situation relating to ivory in the art trade and museums. I'm joined by Ivan McQuiston, an independent art market analyst and campaigner. He's giving a seminar on ivory to the RICS conference on the 1st of March. I'm also joined by Martin Bailey of the Art Newspaper. Ivan, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. And Martin, to you too. Fine. So, uh, I think to establish the context, we should talk about the illegal and very dangerous trade in ivory that exists in the world today. Ivan, would you say something about that initially? Well, the, the clearly is this is a long-standing problem, and uh, I think the demand, particularly from the Far East, has driven it over the years. But I also think that the general issue of ivory is rather more complex um, than has been allowed uh, in the public conscience. There's been a very public death of a figure connected to investigating the ivory trade recently. Um, Martin, do you want to say a few words about Esmond Bradley Martin? Uh, well, this was an anti-poacher campaign in Kenya who was tragically murdered a week ago. Now, we don't know whether it was connected with the work that he did on ivory, but I'd be very interested to know from Ivan what Bradley Martin stood for and what his position was and what his contribution was to this issue? Um, Well, the first thing is he he worked for an organisation called Save the Elephant um, and he specialised really over the last 25 years or so in 
doing proper investigations to establish facts. And on that basis alone, I have a great deal of respect for him. He also uh, went undercover a lot of the time, um, putting his safety at risk. So, as you said, we don't know whether this has led to his death, but it's he certainly was a, a, a greatly respected figure. Um, what he didn't do a lot of the time was to grandstand and give his personal views on whether he thought there should be um, a legal trade or not. He certainly was against the illegal trade. And he identified, certainly in the last five years or so, um, that the biggest problems really were centred in Africa itself, uh, owing to local corruption, um, the influence of wealthy Chinese coming in, um, the fact that there were still open markets in places like Angola and Mozambique, which is understandable because this is where people make money on ivory. And you're talking about a lot of people who have no other income otherwise. Um, and... Uh, I think really that I think he he believed from what I can tell that sorting out those local market those local corruption problems were at the heart of beginning to solve the issue. Now I'd like to come back to the UK because the UK government is going to be issuing um, a statement I believe in March on how uh, we're moving forward on this issue. And I actually wanted to ask you about your views on what the art trade is doing. Um, you're speaking independently um, with us now, although in the past you've been a consultant to, to art um, trade bodies. Can you just explain what the art trade view is of the proposed government regulations? Well, there isn't a single view. That's the first thing. But if I had to give a central view, it would probably be the one from the British Art Market Federation. Um, and that's a very interesting view because it's shifted. So the most recent uh, expression of that is that we would really now be only talking about what they call museum quality objects. Um, and that would fit in with the one of the four proposed exemptions under the new law, which is the one for objects of significant historic, artistic or cultural value. Now, what they also are saying is that these should... Uh, come with certificates issued by the Animal and Plant Health Agency, AFA, who uh, over, it's a government body that overlooks all this sort of thing, and that certificates should cost at least £50 each. Now, obviously, if you're going to go down that route and it's permitted, um, that really excludes any low-value objects and certainly some middle-value objects from being traded in the future. And that area is seen as the most controversial aspect of this proposal amongst people from the wider art market. I'd like to just go back a bit. You, yeah, I was interested you say that the trade position had shifted um, in the last, I don't know, year or two. Uh, what was the position before and why has there been the shift and what exactly is the shift? Well, first of all, it hasn't entirely shifted. That's the British Art Market Federation's position has shifted. Uh, and I'm, I'm not an official spokesman for any of these groups here today, as you said. Um, however, uh, the National Association of Valuers and Auctioneers, which is one of the bigger auctioneer associations, believe that we should have looser rules and re retain the pre-1947 uh, rule, which means that which is currently standing, which means that artefacts that can be shown to have um, come into this country and have been made prior to that date are currently legal. And the British Art Market Federation, I presume, is sort of the major um, overall body. So I'm interested particularly in their position. And why has their position shifted? I, th I, I suspect and it, that it, it's to do with you know, a harsh dose of reality. 
in many ways, it's an extremely difficult campaign to fight to save um, trade and antiques because, uh, well, two reasons, I would say. Firstly, the perception of the art market, and certainly I can remember the Daily Mail uh, talking about the greedy rich art market um, in opposition to the sort of uh, people like Tusk and the other organisations. Whereas, in fact, my experience is the reality is that, that it is the uh, organi- organisations like that with all the celebrity endorsement who actually really have the money on this. One of the issues for the art market is that it doesn't have a lot of campaign money. Um, the other the other issue, obviously, is it's, it's much easier to get the message across that uh, if you're buying or trading antiques, you're, you're possibly putting elephants at risk than to say there isn't really ev- any ev- proper evidence of this. Now, let's look forward um, to the government's um, announcement in March. Um, how do you anticipate they're going to react to the consultation and what do you think is going to be the bottom line of what is likely to be introduced in the UK? Just very quickly, let's talk about the four exemptions that are currently proposed. The first is musical instruments. I think that will stay um, because otherwise there's no future for pianos. The second is what they call the de minimis exemption, which is allowing items containing only a small proportion of ivory and that exists in, in um, certainly in America in various forms. The third is the one I mentioned previously, which is the items of significant historic, cultural or artistic value. And the fourth is sales to and between museums. Now, of those, I think the musical instruments will stay. Um, The de minimis uh, uh, angle, I think, is reasonable. I think there's no guarantee that it will happen, however. Um, I think, again, the significant historic, artistic or cultural value uh, should happen. But again, there's no guarantee. And even if there is a guarantee that it happens... There's no guarantee that they will adopt the museum quality definition as uh, stipulated by the British Art Market Federation. Um, And then the sales to and between museums, again, that may happen, but I think there are longer term consequences for that, which means that even if they do, it'll be irrelevant. Um, But I would say that of all of these areas, I've done a lot of campaigning in Parliament and internationally on politics, It's the third exemption that creates the real issue here, the significant historic, artistic or cultural value, because if you cannot pin down what that definition is, then that's where the lawyer's going to come in, there's going to be test cases, people will be prosecuted, and it can actually allow more things to be sold now or then than are currently permissible now. I mean, how will the system work in practice? And um, what sort of procedures will um, uh, dealers and auctioneers have to go through in terms of paperwork? What is the most likely scenario? Well, the the paperwork currently, uh, which is you need a proper CITES form, I suspect that would happen anyway, and that's quite complex. I think if I, if I perhaps if I talk just quickly about what will happen once they've made the announcement, um, looking at what's happened in the last ten days or so, with with um, when China announced its further banning in uh, Hong Kong, Boris Johnson made a very interesting speech, and in that speech he made it clear, uh, as Michael Gove has earlier, who was the Environment Secretary, that any trade in ivory at all should not be allowed anywhere. So that's their position, even historic ivory. Any, any ivory anywhere. Boris Johnson reiterated that again on the 31st of January when China announced the um, proposed Hong Kong ban. So I would say the default position uh, is probably for the art market is worse than we had hoped for. However, um, I think we also need to remember that there is no actual total ban anywhere. And I think the current Chinese rules you could drive a coach and horses through because they are still permit the sale uh, of 
cultural relics, which are clearly, again, not well defined. Once the announcement's been made in the UK, um, I suspect that it will be fairly quick to change the legislation. I don't think the government will need primary legislation for that to happen. Um, so that could be introduced fairly fairly quickly. However, I do expect, bearing in mind Boris Johnson has also praised the fact that there will be no compensation on the Chinese front. I can guarantee there will be no compensation over here. Um, I think what will happen then is that they will government will be forced to introduce a transitional period, which is what's happening in Hong Kong. And they really have to do that under their 2011 rules, because it will have an effect on the... Um, commercial outcome of businesses in the future. This will allow businesses to uh, adapt and survive. Now, um, if they do that, which I do, I, I couldn't tell you the period that they will allow them to do that. But what I suspect will happen is something similar to Hong Kong, where people are going to be allowed to sell off stocks up to 2021. However, uh, if you allow people to do that, but you, you've got the total ban, for better of a wonder word, looming, that, that ivory is already going to be blighted. So yeah, will, there be, will there be much of a market for it anyway? I was actually wanting to ask about collecting and whether collectors will still want um, to acquire objects with um, an ivory content. And is there not an argument that um, once the present generation of collectors have gone, younger collectors are not actually going to want to come into this field and there will be less demand. I mean, how do you see um, the impact on collecting rather than the trade? I see the impact on collecting as very serious indeed. Um, if we get this ban, and let's talk a, a bit again about this, the fourth exemption, the sales to, muse to and between museums. If we have some sort of allowance whereby a committee is set up to decide whether something is of significant historic cultural value, a bit like the Export Reviewing Committee, let's just say that, then um, I anticipate there would be museum curators on that. Well, that would create, in my view, a conflict of interest, because if they deem that something is not significant enough, then the only route for that work is for a sale or a gift to a museum, i.e. possibly theirs. However, if, as many people now argue, that it is socially unacceptable to display ivory, and that was a point put in Parliament last year, then museums will be under pressure to remove ivory from display. At that point, their only option is to put it in storage. If it is untradeable, at some point in the future, my view is that it can't get back on display. Uh, storage is going to mean uh, preservation, conservation, and some sort of cost. Eventually, they will have to dispose of it. And apart from giving it away to a project. Sorry, are you saying museums would have to dispose of it? I think so. Eventually, this is what it would mean. But most museums are not allowed to deaccession um, in those circumstances. Now, yes. But we're talking about a change in cultural values. And I suspect that if the cultural values of ivory are pushed down that road, eventually this sort of thing will happen. And I think also collectors the same. I think once you, once you move, remove the commodity value of antiques or art, wider art, you put it at risk because it's not simply about making money out of art. It is about having a, a value held within it. I have some sympathy with the view that ivory should, in a, say, in a way, be phased out. However, much, however beautiful mm. I find objects made in ivory, there is part of me that flinches. Now, I'm somebody who spends their life looking at museum objects 
And yet still, I can't quite get beyond that I'm looking at the product of a dead elephant as a, as a lover of wildlife. So I'm wondering if this is actually, this, this is a very real future that ivory just slowly finds its way into museum stores or the massive changes that might come through a provision for deaccessioning. But, oh, you know, is ivory as a, as a desirable object in, in any form something that will just simply fade away? I think it's possible. I, I would not necessarily use the word desirable. That's the first thing, although some bit, some people may think it is. But I think that there there is a historical context. There are an awful lot of things in museums that aren't desirable, but they're still important, and they're still important uh, artefacts of historical note that we need for our cultural understanding. Um, I think one of the most interesting that, things that happened is during the debate last year, the, the Labour spokesperson for uh, this is Rachel Maskell, who um, has now has since been promoted to the uh, Labour front bench as Shadow Transport Minister. Uh, and she took the view that um, nothing of, uh, of ivory can be beautiful. And she wasn't even prepared to debate the possible future of a trade. Now, the reason I select her is because she happens to be the MP for York Central. And in York Central, you have York Minster. And one of the greatest, possibly the greatest treasure in York Minster is what's called the Horn of Alf. Mm. Now, the Horn of Alf is uh, actually, although it is, it's a carved ivory horn of a thousand years old. Um, it is beautifully carved, but it's not entirely carved. I, I suspect that it would actually fall foul of current regulations. But it is actually um, represents. It's actually a document as well because it is actually the deed of covenant that allowed the, cha- the, the lands that now house the chapter of York Minster to be transferred from the Vikings to the church. Um, now, that's in her constituency. And under she actually uh, proposed in that debate that uh, museums should possibly not put items like that on display. Now, that's in her own constituency. Yes, I mean, surely the argument is, uh, surely what's going to happen is that museums are going to gradually accumulate more and more ivory pieces as they become less marketable. And museums will presumably uh, sometimes display the objects, sometimes display ivory objects with some sort of explanation, which has an educational value. And at least the ivory objects will be saved in museums to be shown where is appropriate. Um, so... In that sense, isn't all of this a good thing from the museum perspective? And I stress from the museum perspective. I think you're making a very big assumption there. Uh, If I was a director of a museum and I was suddenly offered a great deal of ivory at this point, I'd be thinking very carefully about whether I really wanted to accept it and the ensuing cost that that would result in. Um, I think it's inevitable. If if ivory is long-term seen as um, not beautiful or uh, not really adding to our cultural consciousness uh, or being a problem, it will gradually dissipate. What can can be done um, um, to alleviate the difficulties which you're putting forward for museums? I I think, first of all, that we just simply haven't had a good enough debate about this. Um, When we go back to that parliamentary debate late last year, um, it was very clear. It was um, very clear that the, a lot of the MPs who did not want to have a future for the ivory trade weren't even prepared to go down that route of debating this issue. I just like to say here, by the way, that 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 in in the um, standoff between should we preserve or allow trade of ivory, or um, if it really does affect the death of elephants, uh, you know, there's no contest. And I don't think anyone in the trade 
would say, oh, we should be able to prepared, be prepared to sacrifice elephants for um, some sort of trade in ivory. Um, but we're talking here about antiques. We're not talking about modern ivory. And I know there are some arguments that people say that's masked um, a trade in ivory. But I think, again, the jury is still out a lot on that. Um, and I think there are real problems elsewhere that are not really being tackled. One of the things is that there are actually very real problems today in terms of museums borrowing uh, ivory objects from each other, particularly in terms of the US and France. Martin, you wrote about that in your uh, your article in the current print edition of the art newspaper. Tell us a bit more about that. Well, I, th- I think international um, exchange of ivory objects will become uh, more complicated, so it would be more difficult for uh, the Metropolitan in New York uh, to borrow from the British Museum or vice versa. So um, I do think that poses a problem. And I'd be interested to know from Ivan to what extent he thinks that the new regulations um, and the environment around it will affect international lending among museums? Well, I can't say it's something I've thought of a huge amount so far, but what I am very well aware of is that museums are now being seen, not just in this area, but in other areas of the art market, as part of the market. Uh, in and what sense? Well, I, one of the areas I work in quite a, a lot is, is uh, the, the, the antiquities market. Uh, and um, certainly there, a lot of archaeologists and academics are now uh, you know, attacking museums for their policies and for things like the way they conduct due, due diligence. And so this is making museums far more con- uh, cautious in general about the way they behave, particularly as individual employees within um, museums can now be held accountable for, uh, what, for their actions. And so I think if you have a choice of, of um, international loans on various, from various counts, um, people are probably going to go for what it's easier and less hassle to borrow. And if you look at what's happening in Germany at the moment, where you've had, um, because of the new cultural heritage laws and property laws there, um, there there's already been cases of um, loan exhibitions being cancelled because source collections in other countries are fearful that they're not going to get their um, items back. One thing that we haven't quite established is once this legislation comes in, what the immediate effects might be. For instance, for somebody who might have a lot of ivory objects that they, a dealer, that might have a lot of ivory objects stockpiled and therefore would be put in an invidious position. Well, I think the first thing is that uh, I would be absolutely amazed if there was no transitional period here, which means that once the legislation, whatever it is, um, becomes enacted, that it's not actually enforced for for a a period. And in that time, people would be allowed to sell off existing stocks, which is exactly what is being proposed in Hong Kong now by the Chinese. However, um, once that's happened... If it's quite clear that, as I said, I think earlier, that there is a looming ban over ivory as a whole, you have to say, well, who's going to buy this stuff? Possibly there will be some people, but there might not. Uh, And so that will possibly leave a whole lot of collectors and dealers with stock uh, in their hands that they then can't sell. Ivan, thank you very much. Thank you. Martin, thank you. Thank you. For more on the ivory ban and its impact on the trade, read the February issue of the art newspaper, which is out now. The murky business in mammoth tusks will be investigated in the March issue. 
But that's all for this episode. Don't forget to subscribe and let us know what you think on Twitter or Facebook at The Art Newspaper and find us on Instagram at theartnewspaper.official. Thanks for listening.